Boston University School of Law, recognized for excellence in legal education since 1872. It's the faculty. It's the students. It's the curriculum. It's the inspiration. Preparing students for the real-world practice of law today. Welcome to BU Law with host David Yaggs. Well, thank you, Gary Tangway, and welcome to the Boston University Law School podcast. Once again, I'm your host, David Yaz. I am the former publisher of Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. My current day job is a vice president at Bernstein Global Wealth Management, but most importantly, I'm a proud alum of BU School of Law, class of 1993. Today, we'll do, as we do every edition of the BU Law podcast, we'll be speaking to a member of the BU community about something interesting going on in the law. And we've got, once again, just a great topic today. You're going to love this one. We are going to discuss the economic impact of the surge in lawsuits by non-practicing entities or more stylishly described as patent trolls. That's right. Fans of Charlie Sheen, you know how evil the trolls are. Now, these so-called trolls acquire patents with no intention of developing a technology with them, but instead use them as leverage for lawsuits, so a real abuse of the system, according to some. Joining me now is James Besson, who was a lecturer in law at the BU School of Law and a fellow at the Berkman Center on Internet and Society at Harvard. Jim is a scholar who studies the economics of innovation and patents. He's been a successful innovator. He's been a CEO of a software company. And Jim and some colleagues have published a paper estimating the amount of, excuse me, the time of wealth lost due to patent trolls, and it's been getting lots of attention. So welcome to the show, Jim. How are you? Good. Glad to be here, David. Well, thanks for joining us. Now, let's talk about these patent trolls, or or more accurately described as non-practicing entities when it comes to patent law. Now, tell us what a patent troll is and, and tell us what they're trying to do. Okay. So first, I should be clear that non-practicing entities encompasses more than just patent trolls. Okay. Non-practicing entities are people or companies of various sorts who deal with patents, uh, but don't actually put them into production, don't provide goods or services. Uh, they've been around since the beginning of the patent system, and, and you have patent agents, uh, for instance, back in the 19th century, playing a very valuable role in helping small inventors get their inventions to market. So recently, we've seen the emergence of something that's really pretty different than what's gone on in the past. Not, not the, the, In the past, they had what they called patent sharks, which are similar. But we've seen what we're seeing now are very large-scale outfits. Uh, one of them has acquired as many as 30,000 patents. They don't uh, for the most part, develop these patents. They, they're buying old patents that are there on the market. Uh, they don't develop technologies with them. They're using them uh, to threaten practicing companies, companies that are, are actually developing the technology, uh, in order to uh, extract royalties from them. So they threaten them with a lawsuit. Um, and, and it's this idea, you know, you know, the old trolls in, I guess it was Norwegian mythology, would hide under a bridge, somebody else's bridge, and then when you cross the bridge, they pop up and demand demand a toll. Yeah. So these people are buying up these patents from apparently, you know, entities that aren't necessarily using them or, or certainly aren't enforcing them, and then being put in a, putting others in a position to pay up when they think there's, there's an infringement. So um, give us an example. Well, there's a... Uh, 
a patent that was filed back in the early 90s uh, was bought up by a patent troll, Intellectual Ventures. And this, this patent, it was a very vague and uncertain patent. It, it's called, it, the title is a Methods and Systems for Gathering Information from Units of a Commodity Across a Network. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not clear to me what that means. It's not clear to an awful lot of other people what it means. Um, a commodity on a network, that's, that's not talking about pork bellies, I'm pretty sure, but we're not sure what this patent actually covers. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they've gone around and demanded royalties from anybody developing apps for, for smartphones, both the Apple iPhone or the Android phones. Uh, and this, is, this includes a lot of very small inventors who have developed apps. Um, some of them have paid up. Some of them have simply gone out of business uh, because of this threat. Do you think the threat is legitimate? In other words, let's say for the sake of argument that the company had more noble purposes that they themselves wanted to develop such patents, or are they are they even stretching the definition of what their their patent covers? Yeah, they, they, they these companies are not offering technologies for sale. Uh, they're offer, you know they're offering a freedom from being sued is, is the only thing that they're they're bringing to market. Mm-hmm. And very often these are very vague, vaguely written patents. It's not clear what they cover. Uh, many, many of them are software patents uh, because that lends itself to this sort of vague, overexpansive, uh, you know, scope for the patent, um, so that they can snare a lot of people in their nets. Does, does the patent office bear some responsibility, though? There, they're the ones that issued the vague patent in the first place, right? Yes, I, I think that that's really the root of the problem. It's not just the patent office. I think you have to. You also have to look to the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which is the court that's, that really sets most patent policy. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what happened was, starting in the mid-90s, they, they started expanding what can be included in a patent, and at the same time, they relaxed a lot of the requirements of what it took to get a patent. So in the mid-90s, you started getting patents on software, on methods of doing business, on mental processes, things that traditionally you could not get a patent for. And, and the reason you couldn't do it traditionally was it was thought that these things don't lend themselves to very predictable boundaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, they relaxed requirements on uh, what it took to get a patent in terms of having something that was definite and clearly defined and could be reproduced. Uh, so the, the combination of these two things is you, you've had a surge of patenting and a lot of it in areas such as software where you're just seeing a lot of what I would call garbage patents, things that, that have very unpredictable scope. They may, they may or may not be valid, but to find out whether something's valid, you have to take it through a very expensive legal proceeding. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is really the source of this problem. So Jim, tell us, this isn't just a case of a couple of staggering companies scooping up all these patents and then using them in an opportunistic way. It's, it's, it's a phenomenon that you've, you've studied in, empirically, and you, and you wrote a paper with some, with some colleagues on this. Tell us about your study, your paper, and, and what you found out. Yeah, so what, well, what we did, we wanted to get a measure of, um, you know, what, what's the economic effect of, of, of this patent troll activity? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had done some previous analysis and developed some techniques that are we're using fairly standard techniques in, ec- in economics. Um, we estimated the loss of wealth associated with patent lawsuit filings. Um, so we, we had 
we identified uh, lawsuits filed by patent trolls against public companies, and we looked at what happened to the stock prices of those companies uh, in the days before and after uh, the filing of the lawsuit. So there are, there are techniques where we can extract out, taking you know out of the picture and other changes that might affect the company's stock and taking out market trends and that sort of thing, so that we can sort of extract out of this the, the magnitude of the change in company capitalization associated with the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And what did you find? The, when we tallied this up over the last 20 years, uh, half a trillion dollars of lost wealth. In other words, the stock market values of these companies was substantially decreased. And this was did not appear to be a temporary change. From everything we could tell, this was a permanent change in the value of these companies, a loss to investors. And that li- that that money lies in. Tell us exactly where that lies. That lies in in companies having to what pay off the the patent trolls in order to to continue so, developing what they're developing. Right. Or? So yeah. So the, 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 yeah. Let me. So there are there are a number of things. That's that's part of it. Um, mm-hmm. So you know you have to ask. Okay, this the stock market is telling us this company is not worth as much. What does that really mean? Um, and part of that might be due to, you know, the stock market's a little irrational. Maybe they overvalued the companies in the first place. Well, we filter that out, and we still have hundreds of billions of dollars in losses. Uh, part of it comes from things like uh, legal expenses. Part of it comes from indirect costs related to the litigation, things like uh, management is distracted because they have to go and file depositions and that sort of thing. Uh, so they're distracted from their, their main business. Part of it comes from uh, amounts that the companies pay to settle the lawsuits. But a large part of it comes from other things like lost business. Um, Catherine Tucker, a professor of economics at MIT, did a recent case study where she looked at uh, a situation where a one of the well-known patent trolls filed lawsuits against the number of companies in the medical imaging technology area. Mm-hmm. What she found was the business units of these companies lost about 30% of their revenue upon filing of the lawsuit uh, relative to other companies that were not sued. And they, they stopped uh, introducing new technology for a period of two years because of the risks associated with the lawsuit. So basically, they they faced large economic losses that were not, you know, direct impact from the lawsuit, but indirect, uh, indirectly from loss of business from customers and from, uh, a, a, you know, situations which prevented them from bringing innovations to market. So it's hurting these companies. Is is there a sense that it's hurting innovation generally? If you look at the tech industry, it would seem these days there's no dearth of companies developing software and, and apps for smartphones and, and all such things. But tell us, is, it, is there a potential that there's a chilling effect on innovation? Right. We, I mean, we, we are the most innovative economy in, in the world. Um, the, and the, certainly the effect of these lawsuits to date is not one of stopping innovation, but it's breaking or inhibiting innovation. It acts like, like a tax on innovation. It, 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 you know, it would be the same effect as if there were a 10 or 20% tax on, on innovation. Mm-hmm. 
So it's, it slows things down. So when, you know, when you see these medical imaging companies that don't introduce an innovation for a period of two years until the lawsuit is resolved, that slows things down. There's still plenty of innovation in medical imaging, but there would be more, uh, say, for these, this patent troll. So what's go- t- can you tell us what's going on in Silicon Valley now with, with regard to this issue? Well, there's a very closely related problem, which is it's not just the patent trolls who are taking a b- advantage of these bad systems, but now you're seeing operating companies getting into the act in a big way. Uh, and the best example is, is in the smartphone area where you've got, I, I think somebody tallied something like 100 different lawsuits going on. That's crazy stuff. A lot of it, on again, on very dubious patents. Um, I, I heard a figure. I don't know whether this is true or not, but Apple Apple apparently spent, it's claimed, according to the rumor, to have spent $100 million in litigation against a- HTC and have very little to show for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and know, HTC, HTC is one of these companies you describe as a, a troll? No, no, I'm sorry. No. H- HTC is... Um, an, an Asian company which manufactures a, a smartphone based on the Google Android okay. operating system. Right. So that's not one of these opportunistic plays. I mean, is, could that be? Well, well, I, I think what you're seeing what you're seeing in Silicon Valley is a lot of opportunistic behavior by companies against other companies. Mm-hmm. So it's not just patent trolls against companies. It's you know, be, you know, when you when you have a lot of garbage patents out there, uh, you, you have a variety of ailments that crop up. So what do you say to the argument that um, these companies, although they may be opportunistic, they're still operating within the boundaries of the law? In other words, in theory, the, the patent office and by extension, the, the courts that interpret those patents should be doing so in good faith with, the, the, let's face it, the, the purpose for a patent in and of itself is, is genuine and, and noble, you might say. It's protecting someone's idea. When someone else purchases it, that's a legitimate transaction there, and now they're enforcing their interest in that investment. Uh, I, well, I, I, I think that argument's basically right. There's not, the, these firms are not doing anything illegal. Right. Uh, they're simply abusing weaknesses in the legal system. You know, after all, the purpose, and it's in the Constitution, the purpose of, of uh, the patent system is to provide incentives to inventors. Uh, here we're providing disincentives. We're actually making it more costly to innovate because you're providing patents to people who aren't innovating to sue companies that are innovating. Mm-hmm. Well, very good, Jim. We are going to continue talking with James Besson from the Boston University School of Law and get into a couple more issues regard to patent trolls and everything going on in this industry. For now, we're going to take a break. Please join us on the other side. This is David Yaz. Thanks. Located in Boston and steeped in 139 years of a rich tradition, BU Law is ranked number one in the nation for best professors and number eight for best classroom experience, according to the Princeton Review. BU Law, admitting students regardless of race, religion, or gender since 1872, and training them to become leaders in the law. Visit the website and see for yourself at www.bu.edu forward slash law. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Welcome back to the BU School of Law podcast. I'm your host, 
David Yaz, and we're having a great discussion today with Jim Besson, who's a lecturer in law at the BU School of Law and a fellow at the Berkman Center on Internet and Society at Harvard. And the broad topic we're talking about today are patent trolls, companies that scoop up patents and then use them for opportunistic purposes to enforce those patents against companies that may be trying to develop a product that is arguably in violation of the of the patent, but these trolls aren't necessarily planning on developing any products themselves. So what can be done about this? And the expert on this, of course, is is Jim Besson. And Jim, tell us, we've been talking a lot about uh, software and smartphones and apps and such, but this, this problem apparently isn't limited to those industries. So tell us about, I, I think you noted that the chemical and pharmaceutical industry being impacted as well. Tell us about that. No, I, I think that's really not so much the case. They, okay. they, they're impacted much, much less. Uh, in fact, we did some numbers. Uh, a software patent is about four or five times more likely to be involved in a lawsuit than a chemical patent. A business method is about 14 times more likely. A financial patent is about 40 times more likely to be in a lawsuit. So that, you know, you, you have to ask, there's something very peculiar going on when, when most of the troll suits involve uh, software business methods or finance. That, that, that accounts for about three quarters of them. Wouldn't the pharmaceutical industry, for example, be a fertile ground for, for companies to Well, you, you think it that? might because there are a lot of big companies, and, mm-hmm. and there is a little bit of troll activity there. Mm-hmm. But the difference is this, which is um, uh, the, uh, so many of these suits are based on patents that have very unclear boundaries. And, and as I was saying before, software and business methods lend themselves to that sort of treatment. Chemical patents or pharmaceutical patents, for the most part, have very clear boundaries. Uh, you know, the Lipitor has a particular chemical structure, and you can any chemist can determine whether a supposedly or possibly infringing product is actually that chemical or is something different. Uh, so it, it, there are very clear boundaries. Property systems depend on having clear boundaries. When you don't have clear boundaries, you get a lot of lawsuits and you get a lot of opportunities for abuse. And that's why uh, we think it is that so much of the troll activity is focused on things like software and business methods. In the paper you produced with some colleagues, Jim, you talked about patent trolls as being the so-called new business model. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, actually, they claim to be a new business model, and and, and they are in some sense. Uh, and, and it's a, a business model that combines, I think, three things. One is uh, they acquire a lot of these patents that have somewhat dubious uh, scope, uh, and they sue large companies with them for the most part, and they sue lots of large companies. So you see um, you know, most of the lawsuits are actually against multiple large companies, often from different industries, um, but you know they're, they're going to sue the large retailers and the large banks and the large computer companies. What's going on here is is a business model where they're able to raise actually billions of dollars in some cases to buy up old patents. Uh, and then even though they these patents have a low probability of winning the court, they go after a large number of big companies that in the off chance that they do get a favorable interpretation in their scope from the court, they have a big payday. So it makes it worthwhile to take this, you know, take these very questionable patents. Uh, 
bring them to court. And this is a very different business model. The idea that you can raise large amounts of money, buy a patent, and, and you know, leverage it. So these companies must have large, robust legal departments because it seems like that's all they do is, is sue to enforce the patents. Well, exactly. Or they, they deal with uh, some independent lawyers who specialize in doing troll laws. Well, since we're talking to so many alumni of the, the BU School of Law, we might mention this as a potential career opportunity, although I, think, <laughs> I, although I don't think most people go to law school with dreams of becoming a, a lawyer that specializes in, in working for a patent troll. Um, that's, that's my thought anyway. Well, so, there's no doubt that uh, patent litigation has become a growth area. <laughs> right, right. Um, so tell us, is this problem going to get Better or worse? Will it will it continue? Tell us about the next few years in this. So, well, we've been tracking this for quite a few years now, uh, and we see it has. You know, the, if you look at things like the total litig- number of litig- patent litigation going on, particularly in areas like software and business methods, uh, it has been mostly on a steady upward trend. Um, there recently was a, a last fall a, a new. Um, uh, reform to the patent law was passed. Uh, we don't think that's going to have much impact. We think the trend is going to continue. Uh, it's we're starting to see the uh, the level of pain, uh, mostly in the IT industry. You know, get, uh, get to that point where the top management is now becoming concerned and is now starting lobbying activity. But we think that basically until things get worse, they're not going to get better. What is what is likely to change this? You mentioned a couple efforts, but is there one a singular advocate that can help this problem? Yeah, the, well, the, the the most positive activity we've seen so far actually comes from the Supreme Court because there there have been a number of decisions in the last few years where they have started to to back off some of the this expansion in the patent system and 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 the, the, they've started to you know return to some. Uh, stricter standards for patentability, mm-hmm. um, and and I suspect the Supreme Court's going to continue in that vein. There are a number of suits coming up again this year. I think, though, uh, we're going to see uh, at some point a, a renewed legislative effort, uh, just simply because it's going to uh, the costs are going to continue to rise and become so great that. Uh, uh, particularly firms in the ITC, information technology and communications industries, uh, are are going to be forced to act. That's going to change. So um, there's a question, you know, is this, you know, what what sort of solutions should should they be looking for? What sort of changes should be done? And and there's some people who argue that, um, uh, you know, we should look at at restricting trolls in particular in, in, in some way. I, I'm not sure that's the best policy because I think um, there are some laws. The there are some laws. Uh, excuse me, Jim. There are some laws that prevent internet squatters, right? There are some that people that swoop in and grab a URL and then try to profit from it without actually right, using it. Right. Be a similar sort of dynamic. Yeah, yeah. So, but there's a the the, the root problem here is a, a you know a basic failing in the 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 uh, clarity, the boundaries, the predictability of of the scope of these patents. Uh, and, and, and that's a, a problem that goes deeper than, and, and is, concerns more than just patent trolls. Uh, so my, my feeling would generally be that efforts to 
restrict trolls specifically uh, might not be the the best solution. There are there are some some policy changes. For instance, going to the the English rule where you know the lo- loser pays legal costs um, right. might actually def- d- uh, diminish some of the troll activity, uh, and that that might be helpful. But I, th- I think the bigger problems are solving these problems of uh, uh, patent breadth and and vagueness. Jim, Jim, we have time for just one more quick question, and I'm I'm just curious. You mentioned that what these companies are doing are is not per se illegal right now, and and I suppose you could describe their actions as anywhere from opportunistic and entrepreneurial to you know downright despicable. Tell us what most bothers you about this phenomenon. I guess uh, <laughs> uh, a lot of things, I suppose. Yeah, I will. I I, th- I think the thing that most bothers me is. That 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 some of them have done a very nice PR job of trying to imply that what they're doing is actually helping innovation, where in fact what they're doing is just the opposite. Well, well put, well put. Special thanks to our guest Jim Besson for joining us today and informing us on this topic, which, like many of the topics we cover here, is is a very interesting and timely one, and one that I and I'm sure many others would not have known otherwise than. Um, in, but we have this discussion, which is just tremendous. So thank you, Jim. Now, Jim, if someone wanted to contact you to learn more about this topic, how could they do so? Uh, well, the easiest way is probably just to Google me. Uh, you'll you'll find me, uh, James Besson, B-E-S-S-E-N, or contact my email, J-B-E-S-S-E-N at B-U dot E-D-U. Very good. Thanks for joining us t- today, Jim. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. You can find all editions of the BU Law Podcast on Legal Talk Network. The BU Law website, as well as on iTunes. I'm David Yaz. Once again, thank you to the great people here at the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening, and have a great day, everyone. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the BU Law Podcast. Check out what else is happening on campus at bu.edu forward slash law.